Good morning. But our question today, when we talk about life and teaching, is what is the church? What is the church? First Timothy 4.16 uh, Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It is absolutely essential, absolutely essential that we get the church. We understand the church. We have to get this right. We have to get these basic Christian doctrines right or we're not Christians. We're syncretists or, or, or something worse if we don't get these basics right. We have to get the church right. We have to put the church in the place Jesus puts it so the church flourishes. Confusion abounds in Christian subculture about the church. Churched people struggle to define the church apart from describing what their church does in regard to simply providing services for them. Example, I'm going to challenge you this week to find somebody not in here who heard this or routinely goes to our website and pulls my manuscript notes, but ask somebody to distinguish between the universal church and the local church sometime this week. Ask them to do that. And see if and how they use Scripture to do it. My hunch is you will get a different answer for every person you ask and you will get things that don't even relate to what the Bible actually says what the church is is not as simple as a chapter and verse in the Bible because the entire context of the New Testament is the church it's the context the church is the context of the entire New Testament the good news the gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are good news tracks used in the missionary work of the church described in the historical narrative of Acts. The letters are letters to the churches. The apocalypse, the revelation, is written to the seven churches. The church is the context of the entire New Testament. And the DNA that we said that we've, we've taught you for so many years and putting the church where Jesus puts it so she thrives is KDSC, Kingdom Disciple Society Church. It's not CKDS. It's not Church, Kingdom Disciple Society. It is the gospel of the kingdom, this good news of Jesus and his reign and his rule makes disciples. It's a powerful message, and it takes people from death to life. It makes disciples who learn to hear and obey God's word. And those disciples, this is how Jesus multiplies his missionary task force, is he doesn't call them out of their vocational domains in the ministry. He mobilizes the whole church, because our key question is, what if the whole church was the missionary? He mobilizes every disciple everywhere all the time to be in their vocational domains as gospel preachers. And from there, Jesus builds and multiplies his church. The church comes from the gospel of the kingdom, making disciples who work in their vocational domains, preaching this good news, and from there Jesus saves people and gathers them together in bodies that multiply and fill the earth. We don't know what that looks like practically because we live in a CKDS subculture, not a KDSC subculture. We've been working, striving hard to build that, and so I think that's one of the reasons that I, I feel the need to hang here a little bit today. Jesus told us the church is what he's building. Matthew 16, I will build my church. It's what Jesus is doing in the Great Commission among every tribe and nation. Jesus 
is saving people and calling them into his body, the church. As I've said already, the church is the entire context of the New Testament. There's no single chapter, no single book that defines fully and describes the glorious multifaceted nature of the church. The church is simply the entire context of the entire New Testament. And as a result, you have to work through, really, Genesis to Revelation because we see the people of God to some degree gathered in the nation of Israel. And we see that shift when the gospel of the kingdom, when the kingdom comes and and Jesus comes and he sets foot on this earth and takes on human flesh and the kingdom has come and he's working that kingdom out. The, The people of God begin to shift to people who are of the faith of Abraham, not the circumcision of Abraham. It's not national descent. It's not political descent. It's not law descent. It's faith. Romans 2, 3, and 4, the faith of Abraham. And he tells us there that you... That Israel isn't outward and physical and circumcision. It's not genetic. It's of faith and it's of the Spirit. Therefore, it goes to all nations. And so there's no nice, neat place. So you just need to read the whole Bible, which is why we give you a Bible reading plan and encourage you to work through it so that you can see that the people of God, you need the whole Bible to come together and coalesce into understanding who we are. Because it just tell you this morning that something beyond what you can see with your eyes is taking place around you right now? We're not naturalists. We're not evolutionary biologists. That's a different team. That's, that's a dark, different team. We are supernaturalists. The Bible teaches us that there is more to this world than our physical eyes can see. There's an unseen realm. There's an enemy. There are pro-us forces And we are wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we learn in the Bible, we learn in 1 John that they teach. They actively insert ideas into broken humanity and to those of us who aren't discerning because we're not living with the filter of God's Word and living by the Spirit. And so we have to read and be together and know what the church is. So this is a definition we're going to use. You've heard it before. I've used it with you before. In fact, I used it back in January when we did KDSC like we do every January. Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen on Rediscover Church While the Body of Christ is Essential, page 124. You see the footnote there in the notes. Here's our working definition. We need a good working definition that comes together from all the parts of the Bible, and this is the one we're going to use. Now, let me say this. There are good multiple working definitions of the Bible, of the church. This is the one we're going to use. If you've got a good resource, it's got one that similar, that's fine. You use that. This is one we're going to use, okay? And so if you want to go read and find one, that is perfectly fine. This is one we're going to use and hang out on because it does a good job of coalescing what the whole Bible says about the church. Here's our definition. This is what we're going to spend our time on today is taking this definition apart, and we're going to look in Hebrews chapter 12, the whole chapter, okay? We're not going to stand and read today because I had them prepared for us to stand and read Ephesians, 1, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. But in the audible, I'm like, oh, don't do that to y'all. Y'all just hang. Thank you for your hard work, ladies. We're just going to, we're just going to, you're going to read it. You're going to open your Bible, look quietly. I'm going to read it out loud and work through it. But this is our definition. We're going to take it apart. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip there. The church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King. 
to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances of Lord's Supper and Baptism, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world, following the teaching and example of elders. It's a good working definition, so let's take it apart and let's see what we find in the text of Scripture to help us ask and answer the question, what is the church? Now, next week we're going to come back, and the application is Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. So the application today is just you need to learn some things, all right? And so the application is Ephesians. In fact, if you go look at the notes, the application is Ephesians 4. And I even said originally in my notes, bear with me, long introduction, and I realized it's going to be an hour and a half long sermon, and I was like, you need to change that. And so this is what we're going to do. Okay? So you're not going to get a nice, neat, bow-tied package like, go do these five things. It's not going to happen. We're just going to learn what the church is, let the Bible get in us, and see what he wants to produce with it, okay? Good? Here we go. Here we go. The church, this is the first part of Lehman and Hansen's definition. The church is a called-out group of Christians who assemble. The church is a called-out group of Christians who assemble. The Old Testament refers to the assembled people as the gathering. And you'll find this little Hebrew word used consistently, and it's translated in English for us as gathering. You can see in my notes what the Hebrew word is. The Greek translation of the Old Testament takes that word and uses a Greek word. I'll say this one for you, ekklesia, because you probably have heard it if you've been in Christian subculture a while. You've heard ekklesia. It uses ekklesia in the place of that Hebrew word to speak about the gathering of the people of God. It's the same word, ekklesia, that the New Testament writers also use to describe the church. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses a word that the New Testament writers use to describe the church, and the Old Testament has a word, the equal equal word, and they both mean gathering. And particularly, as we get to the New Testament, and this word ekklesia comes online, it gets even richer. Ekklesia is the called out ones. And secondarily, it is an assembly called out ones into an assembly. This is Hebrews 12 among multitudes of passages in the New Testament is one of the reasons, and we'll see this in Ephesians 4 next week, is one of the reasons you can't just claim to be a member of the universal church and never be a member of a local church. There's no such thing as being called out to belong to Jesus and just floating. Float to here, float to there, float to this, float to that, pull from this, pull from that. There's no such thing like if my finger is cut off from me today, and Ephesians 4 is Jesus is the head, his whole body grows from him, and so therefore this language of the New Testament, we are the body of Christ because Jesus gives us the gift of himself in Ephesians 4, and those five gifts, ascension gifts of Jesus, so that's what it means to be Jesus, the body of Christ in the world. If my finger is cut off, it's no longer apart from me, and it ceases to function in its created means. Does that make sense? So if a person is cut off from the local church, they are no longer part of the body. They're not functioning with the gift Jesus gave them to be part of a body and a whole moving in the same direction. Does that make sense? So this language of assembly and gathering called out to be together means that there's a lot of us universally, and we'll see it very clear in Ephesians 4, but that called out universal body has a local component in which we gather together as people who have a distinct identity. 
Tracking? A little bit? All right. So Hebrews 12.23 is a place that uses this language. It's ecclesia, and ecclesia is translated as assembly. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just walk through Hebrews 12, okay? And, and, and for this first point, and then we're going to move speedily through the rest of the definition because this one sets the stage for everything else. There's so much here. <laughs> it may be an hour and a half anyway. Therefore, now, setting. Hebrews, not sure who the author is. There's lots of opinions. Written to Hebrew believers who are highly persecuted. So it's a specific group of people who have a Hebrew Jewish background, but they've come to faith in Jesus and they're highly persecuted and they're facing a difficult time. And the writer of Hebrews wants them to know very distinctly that there is nothing to gain and everything to lose if you walk away. So chapter 6 is a hard chapter, and it's got some difficult things to walk through. And so the encouragement is do not walk away, because if you walk away, you walk away from the body. You walk away from the body, you stop being a part of the body, and it's evident you never were part of the body, so just don't walk away. Chapter 10, we know better things about you, he says, because when you started getting persecuted, they took your homes, they plundered your property, they all these things. You didn't stop following, but you leaned in, and you weren't ashamed of those who got caught. In fact, you exposed yourself by going to visit them in prison so the authorities knew who we all were. So we don't leave. We stay the course because we're part of the body together locally of the universal body of Christ. So that's kind of the background of what's happening. So he gets to chapter 11 and he tells them this is what faith looks like. It looks like these saints who live like that because they didn't get to see what we get to experience, but they held on by faith. Some were sawn in two. Some were stoned. Some didn't have the revelation we have, and they held on. So that's faith. Live like that. And then chapter 12, he does this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, that's not your dead relatives. Don't let people tell you that. That's not my, that's not my mom and dad that's gone on and they're looking over the ramparts of heaven at me. That's not what this says. The great cloud of witnesses is all the witnesses he just mentioned in chapter 11 who have lived by faith. And they have witnessed to the reality of the kingdom of God and what the church looks like. Make sense? That's the great cloud of witnesses. Since we have these people who've given us an example, let's lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. He wouldn't tell us to run with endurance if it was easy. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, he's the head of the church, he's the example who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The you is not individual, it's plural, and it's speaking to the gathered church, the local gathered body who's receiving this letter, who is part of the larger whole, so that you all together will not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you're an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. They're undergoing this difficulty, and he's reminding them it's not because you're not sons, it's precisely because you are children of God. And it's not just willy-nilly at the hands of the bad guys. Genesis 50, 20 is in play here. These are Hebrews. They know Genesis. They know the story of Joseph. What they meant for evil, God meant for good because there's nobody operating outside of the sovereign hand of God. He rules his universe well. And so if you're in Christ, you're a daughter, you're a son. And so this difficulty you're undergoing, this life of faith... It's all designed by God to get you to a place of being holy as the people of God. Verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is a reference back to Deuteronomy 29, 8, in which this root of bitterness isn't like, ooh, getting bitter at somebody. The root of bitterness in Deuteronomy 29 is people were beginning to abandon the people of God. They were walking away from faith in the Lord. And Moses calls this a bitter root that led to other people walking away from the Lord and sinning. So what he's telling them here is, because they're Hebrews, they're remembering Deuteronomy 29 now, don't let walking away, sinning, and walking away from the people of God and not engaging with the people of God and separating yourself from the people of God turn into something that is viral because sin is atmospheric. It's viral. You sin, it affects people in your household. Your household affects other households. And those households begin to affect other households. And before you know it, this bitter root is being eaten by everybody and people are walking away. So he's telling them, look back to Deuteronomy and don't forget that the people of God, when they let sin in and they let walking away in and they all started walking away, it caused problems, so don't do that. Verse 16, no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Don't be like that. Verse 17, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you've not come to what may be touched. Now he's talking to them again. You're the church. You've not come to what can be touched. Listen carefully. A blazing fire and with darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of those, uh, the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message may be spoken to them. Does anybody know what he's talking about? This is coming out of the Red Sea and coming to the mountain of God where Moses... The 70 elders and Aaron go up onto the mountain and meet with the Lord. The assembly called out the midst of Egypt to be a people for his own possession. They come and gather at this mountain. And he's saying, you've not just come to a mountain where you're hearing this stuff and, and it's going on and this is massive and God is on the mountain and he's revealing himself to the people. 
Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Here we go. This is the passage in this first point. The heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the, the assembly, the ecclesia, the called out people of God, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What in the world is he saying? This church that we're telling you don't walk away from, the people of God don't walk away from, you not just come to a mountain, you don't just receive the law. We're talking about the called out people of God. And they're gathered among the innumerable angels you can't see. It's a supernatural event, and there's supernatural things happen. You are Mount Zion. You are now the temple of God. You're the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. All of us together are the temple of God. So you've not just come to something. You didn't just come to get a service today or some goods or to have your ears tickled or to feel better about something. You gather today as a people of God among unseen forces to Mount Zion, a bunch of temples come together as one temple as a local church. And Jesus is the mediator of those who make them right. And we've gathered in this time this morning and it is awesome and amazing. And how dare we come looking for something to get rather than coming to the mountain and going, I'm in the presence of God. That's what's happening right now. By the way, that's why it's hard. That's why it's difficult. This is why you get up on Saturday and spend 16 hours doing all manner of junk and be fired up about it. And Sunday, it's like, well, it's just so hard. It's like, do you think that's accidental? It's a battle and it's a war and there are forces aligned for us and against us. We've come to this event called the church, this gathering called the people of God. Verse 25, so see that you don't refuse him who's speaking. See to it, you don't refuse him who's speaking. And I say to you this morning, if you're in this building and you've never heard this good news that Jesus is God and he is the eternal creator of all things and this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is God above all and he's creator of all things and he's provided salvation from the fall, the curse of sin because of rebellion against him and he came and he took on flesh, he died in our place for our sin, on, buried and on the third day he rose, he ascended to the Father to do what Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 tells us about in providing sacrifice and an eternal salvation for all those who will just believe that's the gospel of the kingdom, that's the good news of the kingdom if you believe in that it will take you from death to life So this morning, if you're a new person who hasn't heard that message, all you need to do is believe that and don't refuse him who's speaking to you. And you know, he's like, how do I know he's speaking? You know. You just know. There's not like these five things. You just know. And if you are a follower of Jesus and Holy Spirit is telling you something, now don't refuse him. Say, how do I know? You know. You just know. Asking how do you know is usually, it's like my kids. Like, how do you know is a diversion tactic to try to get me off my game. And as your parents, if you're better than parents, you know, right? 
you know they know. They know you know, but it's a game. That's why we stop being cool. We lose our minds, and we start yelling. And next thing you know, we're mentally unsound, and we start wearing socks with flip-flops. And it's just the way it is. And so don't ask, how do you know? You know. You know if God's speaking to you. It's not a mystery. I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but kind of not. You kind of know. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So it matters this morning that we hear and obey. It matters that we hear the Lord about his church because Jesus died to save his church and bring her together as an assembly of the firstborn sat over by Jesus who is the head of the church and we are his body. So you think if we're his body, he cares about us knowing who we are, who he is, and our relationship to him, and our relationship to each other. You think that's important? I'd say it's everything. So let's not reject him because we are his body. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Third Day's got a good song about that, by the way. Mac Powell rocks consuming fire. It's a great song. Some of y'all don't know who Third Day is, and that's because you're lost, and you need to repent and go listen to some Third Day. <sighs> Ecclesia. Right in the middle of Hebrews 12, he calls us the gathering, the called out people. The called out people who are Mount Zion, the temple of God, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And around us are angels watching. Watching. And you can't help because we got angels and demons coming up in a couple of weeks. What are angels and demons? You can't help but hear passages in Daniel where Daniel has asked the Lord for things and the Lord hasn't answered. And he meets Michael. The Lord lets him see into that realm and he meets Michael. Michael said, from the time you asked, I was sent to bring the answer, but I've been detained because I've been fighting with the prince of Persia. And Gabriel came and helped out and I got loose and I came to bring the answer to your prayer. If you are praying and still waiting, keep praying because there are unseen forces aligned against you and against the kingdom which is why Jesus taught us Luke 18 1 to 8 he taught them this parable that they should always pray and not lose heart <laughs> because there's more going on right now than you can ever imagine and he says here this is just, the, I told you we'd go quickly once we got through this. The church is a called out group of Christians who assemble. This called out people who assemble, Hebrews 12, that's it, that's what we are. We've inherited an unshakable kingdom as the church. The church cannot be shaken because it's built on the foundation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we've inherited that. And as the inheritors of that kingdom, we are the called out assembly of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're called out of the world and then to be gathered together, not float, 
Not float, not be here, not be there, but be connected. Church membership is biblical. It is all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 13, verse 17. I've told you this before. The questions about Hebrews 13, 17 are massive because they're accountable to each other. And I've told you this before, that as, as an elder in a local church, if that's just universal, that I'm accountable for everybody in Rome, Georgia, I resign today. I'm not doing that. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And I guarantee John and Jim, same boat, like, mm-mm. Y'all make me nervous enough. Much less add all of Floyd County. I mean, you've been to Silver Creek? I'm not doing that. I was from Silver Creek. No. Not accountable for those people. Meaning there is the local body that comes out of the universal who's accountable to each other and is the body functioning among each other to serve and grow each other up and disciple each other. That's what Hebrew, that's what Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is. So we're the ecclesia, the called out people. The New Testament sees those Old Testament saints and those of us who believe the gospel is one body, diverse from many backgrounds, gathered in local fellowship, and citizens of the household of God, the Mount Zion, the temple, the people of Jesus Christ. That's probably, probably should stop there. But we need to press forward to finish this first half. So, the church called out a group of Christians who assemble. Secondly, and there are only six parts, I told you they'd go fast. Therefore, the church is the earthly gathered embassy of Jesus' kingdom. If that's who we are, then the church is the earthly gathered embassy of Jesus' kingdom. An embassy is a place of sovereign territory in a foreign country. When we're in a foreign country, I always am aware of where the United States Embassy is because that sweet, beautiful, golden blue book you carry in your pocket is an absolute piece of currency that can bail you out of hard things when you get to that sovereign piece of territory called the United States of America in a foreign country. It's awesome. That passport's gold, baby. That embassy is sovereign United States territory. The church is the embassy of the kingdom of God as the called out, gathered people of God. Jesus came preaching this good news of his kingdom, Mark 1, 14 to 15, and he said he was building his church. So the church is the product of the kingdom. You guys have been here long enough, you know that, Kingdom Disciple Society Church. As a result, the church preaches this good news of the kingdom of Jesus and is itself the sovereign territory belonging to Jesus in a world that we've been sent into to draw people out of with the preaching of this good news of Jesus so that they might become part of the sovereign territory of Jesus. Thus the church is the called out, gathered embassy of the kingdom of God. So what's happening right now in this building is kingdom stuff. Kingdom stuff. What's happening in your heart right now is kingdom level stuff. What's happening in your mind is kingdom level stuff. And if you're distracted and not paying attention, chances are that's not kingdom level stuff. That's the kingdom of this world keeping you from hearing the thing that will save you or the thing that will grow you up into Christ. Because there's more going on than meets the eye. Angels and festal gathering. This, This place is loaded with the supernatural happening right now. Number three, the church proclaims the good news of Jesus who is the king. So we have a message to share. And that message is Jesus is Lord. 
You're talking about a message that turned the world upside down. One of my favorite passages when the church goes to a guy named Jason's house, the church gets in trouble at Thessalonica, and the accusation is those people who've turned the world upside down have come here to what were they saying? We read in Acts 17, 7, the accusation is this. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Listen, when you start preaching the message that my allegiance is not to a flag or to a state or to a party, but to Jesus alone, you will make Christians, Christians, you will make all manner of people mad at you. You can only have one allegiance. You can't have multiple allegiances when it comes to this. Jesus is king. In Acts 17, 7, in the whole New Testament, affirm Jesus is Lord, and the implication of that confession is Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords, and his good news of his kingdom is the way of salvation because there's no other name under heaven given to men whereby we can be saved. It is only by the king of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. And this is our good news. So the church proclaims this good news that Jesus is king. It's our message. Fourth, the church affirms one another through ordinances of Lord's Supper and baptism. Now that we've been called out, the assembly gathered together, we belong to a new people. And Jesus gave us two ordinances as constant reminders of who we are and whose we are. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 33 remind us that the supper that we've taken already is for believers and believers only. It's the Lord's ordained means of remembering and proclaiming the centrality of his death until he returns. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, if you are mistaking this, it's probably the reason some of you are sick and dying. So when you approach the table, do you approach it going, I'm not ought to be careful. You should, because it's not just bread and juice. It's for Christians. And if you're not a Christian, don't take it. It is a reminder of the death of Jesus that I believed in that and by faith am appropriating that death to me. I just tell you as a family, we don't make a law out of this here. We've never made a law out of this. Kind of leave it to your conscience. But as my family, my boys did not take the supper until they believed the gospel and were baptized. That was the Jolly House. Because I don't want sick and death in my house because I'm letting unbelievers take the supper. And until they repent and believe the gospel, they're not believers. I'm not Catholic. We don't do regenerative baptism when they're babies. That's not how this works. You only get saved when you believe in Jesus. Make sense? And so therefore, this ordinance is a reminder, Jesus died in my place for my sin, and I believe that. And he gave us that. That's why we do it every week. That's why you hear a gospel presentation. You hear the good news proclaimed from right here. Stephen, great job leading us to come to the table and take the supper because it's a reminder of the message that we're to preach. And then he gave us in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, the second ordinance, and that's baptism. Jesus told us to go make disciples of every nation and then baptize them. Baptism is a public profession of faith, and it's the reminder that I've entered into the local, king, the local church, which is an outpost of the kingdom of God. Baptism is how we publicly profess and confess we belong to the Lord Jesus and are joining in membership with the local church. Let me say this as a side note. Churches baptize, not nonprofits and camps. Baptism belongs to the assembly of the firstborn. 
And it is the church's glory to celebrate it together because that ordinance is a reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we've entered into so that when we die, we're also going to be raised too. And that we're now carrying the message of Jesus. So baptism is important. Fifth, the church displays God's holiness and love as a unified and diverse people as in all the world as the local church. The church displays God's holiness and love as a unified and diverse people in all the world as the local church. Definition makes it clear our playground is every nation, all the world. Jesus sent us to go make disciples of every nation. And so the church is to display as the called out people of God. We're to display God's holiness and love as a unified church. So we don't let that root of bitterness set in because we're holy. We're not looking for people to walk away. Walking away is not good. You don't walk away. You walk away. There's no coming back. Stay. Stay the course. Joyfully accept the plundering of your property if that's what it takes. Just don't walk away from Jesus. There's nothing to gain. You may gain your life for a few years, but in the end you will lose because you will stand before God who's a consuming fire having denied Jesus in this life, evidencing that you never belong to Jesus. So whatever you do, do not walk away from Jesus. No matter how hard it gets, even if it means giving your life, don't walk away from Jesus. And so the church displays the holiness and love of God as a unified, diverse people in all the world as the local church. We're the called out people of God and the world is our playground and everywhere we go we're to preach this message that Jesus is king, preach this good news of Jesus' salvation and his kingdom as a holy people, diverse and unified on a singular mission. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 reminds us what that looks like. Don't have time to go to that. Need to end it. Need to close it down. Last point. The church is led then through the teaching example of elders and overseers. Titus 1, 5 to 9 is a snapshot, and there's, just, there's a whole book on this called Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strout. It's worth reading. But Titus 1, 5 to 9 is a snapshot of the fact that elders, and then the notes, by the way, you, I have like, um, like four sermons, and I think it's a total of like 40 pages of notes on the blog. If you go to the little search engine on the right-hand side of my blog and type elders, biblical eldership, you'll pull up all that. You can read it. It's all there for you and all the scripture references. But Titus 1, 5-9 is a snapshot of the fact that elders overseers are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And they're to be appointed by other elders or apostolic founders of the church that a newly appointed elder overseer is then appointed to, particularly in the case of Titus, 5, Titus 1, 5-9. So the church is to be overseen and taught, guarded and mobilized with a leadership model that has its roots in Old Testament Israel, and is more clearly articulated in the entirety of the New Testament. One of the things we do in Christian subculture that I have to stop doing, and Jim and John tell me they cringe every time I do this, because I'm part, I'm part of the subculture. Lest you think I've arrived, I am from Silver Creek. And you can take the boy out of Silver Creek, but it's hard taking Silver Creek out of the boy. And some of that's Christian subculture. And so I will refer to them as Pastor John or Pastor Jim, and they both know. They've read, they, they, they know. It's like, that's, no, we can't do that, because when we do that, we start confusing Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 with the rest. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. So here's what we do. Here's what we do. We equate pastor, which Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is going to tell us is one of the gifts Jesus given to the whole body. And when we call elders and overseers pastors, we've equated the gift that Jesus gives the whole church with the model Jesus has given to oversee his church. I'm not pastor. John's not pastor. Jim's not pastor. We're elders. 
The Bible never, ever equates pastor with elder overseer. That's just a subculture thing we've done. We called spiritual leaders pastors. The Bible never does that. And so just call us Mitch, Jim, and John. Because elder sounds like Mormons and Jehovah's Witness because they use the same title and we're not a cult. I'm just saying. Like, I know it's weird because I know that. And I'm like, oh, God, if they say that, it's going to sound like I wear a white dress shirt and ride a bicycle all over town knocking on doors. No, 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 no. That's just what, no. That's a different team. That's what cults do. This is why I should always stay on my notes. That's why I have manuscript because I don't say stuff like that. But the model God gives for overseeing this beautiful thing called the church or elders overseers who are then to raise up others who take that role too. One of the things I'm proud of in this church, we've never had an elder overseer in this church who weren't, who was not raised up from its membership. And we never will. As long as I'm alive and long as I'm here, there will never be an elder overseer who's not coming from the membership of this church, who's in the pipeline of learning biblically what that role is and takes that role on themselves sober-mindedly. But that's what God has chosen as the means of propagating the local church. Hebrews 12 is a microcosm of why this question and the answer to it is so important. Three Rivers Church, you're one of many in this town, and there are lots of glorious bodies of Christ in this town who do a fantastic job being an outpost of the kingdom of God. And we're all part of the universal church, but each of us are gathered as the local church on mission with distinct gifts among us, and it is okay that it is thus. That's not evil, that's very good. In fact... If we reached all 100,000 people in Floyd County, we're probably about, I've done the math on this before and I've written it down, so I'm going to totally jack it up. But we're some 300 churches away from having actually enough bodies of Christ to assimilate 100,000 people into the kingdom of God. So people are like, Floyd County's got too too many churches. No, they don't. It's not possible. It's not possible. We're not even close. Or do we care about the 100,000 people in our county? Are we happy with the 20 that show up once a month in the churches that do exist? Are we okay with that? Is that the assembly, the called out people of God who's gathered in festal gathering with angels and all this stuff? And these great cloud of witnesses who who have witnessed to this life of faith and people have given up their lives for the kingdom of God? Those are our witnesses. Are we happy with the 20,000 people who periodically show up? I sometimes think the local church in Floyd County is happy with that. And all we want to do is just rotate amongst ourselves and go to our five, six, seven Bible studies, not concerned with the outposts of, of Silver Creek and Coosa and Shannon and Armerchie and those places where pagans actually live in your town. Yes, pagans. And the kids are in the system, and they go to our schools, and schools are a wreck and a mess. And then our response is, well, that's just too hard. Really? We're an outpost, an embassy as a church of the kingdom of God. And Jesus came, and that message is to take people from those states and transform them. And our job is then to disciple them into followers of Jesus Christ. There's not enough of us. Not enough. 
One of my prayers has been since we decided to come back to Rome, Georgia, that at some point, at some time, God would start a movement out of this fellowship of multiplying churches that don't look like what you think they look like. They look like this. They look like Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. They ask and answer the question, what if the whole church was the missionary? Which means they don't think about building something massive that eats up 85% of the budget, but they think about employing people and mobilizing the whole church so that every single member is a missionary. And building everything around that mentality that all of us are called as agents and ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And when we leave here, we say, Three Rivers Church, you are sent, that you're apostled, you're sent on mission to preach this good news. Oh, that you had 20 people around you who met Jesus for the first time, and God used you to multiply a little fellowship. You can figure out how to meet. There are five million ways to do that. Can I give you a little secret? What if, just what if, at some point in time down the road, because I know it's a little too crazy for our mentality right now, that our radical life groups multiplied. That's crazy. Multiply. But then at some point down the line, God moved in those groups, and they actually became independent local churches. Whoa. Can that happen? Yeah. That's how you got Acts. That's what's happening in Acts. Multiply, multiply, multiply. You get downstream enough that you're like, I think we need to be an independent church. Yes, because guess what? There are enough nations on the planet that need the gospel, that need local churches to go there, that we can't do it all. Our India team meeting Friday, we're, we're kind of having to start over. You know, Afghanistan was for so many years and things left. We're here. We're like, what do we, how do we, how do we start over? Like, there are 300 villages in the Suru Valley, all of them lost. It's so overwhelming. You just scattered. Like, which one do we do? And, and our guy, our friend's like, there's a whole nother valley over there. You want to go see it? We're like, we probably need to stay in this one. Maybe one of the villages in this valley. Like, so what if these churches multiply and at some point one of them says, I'll take that village. We're like, I got this village. I've got Guntabsa. I've got this one. I'll go to that valley. That's just one, that's one state in the whole country of India that just became the most populous nation in the world, surpassed China. We can't do that work unless we're multiplying disciples and the church looks a little bit different. What if the whole church was a missionary? By gosh, we are. And Hebrews 12 just gives us a glimpse of how glorious you actually are. I want to say this to you. Hear this. We do this pretty daggum good. It's just that the tractor beam of the church framework starts to suck us back in tomorrow morning first thing. Well, why don't? Why didn't? Why can't? And next thing you know, you're just back in that framework. You're CKDSing rather than KDSCing. It's real. I'm part of it. Like I said, you can take me out of the creek, but you can't get the creek out of me. I'm chief CKDS among us. But if we live this and lean in to this identity of who we are. Y'all, I'm telling you, what God's done in changing the world in 20 years, he can tenfold that in the next five. You are part of that. You do that well. You fight well. It's hard, I know, but you fight well. Keep fighting. Feel the encouragement off of that. And next week, we're going to dive into how Jesus has gifted us to do just that. We'll get very application-oriented. So you notice how he ended Hebrews 12? He said, let's gather and worship because we've come 
to an on-fire people of God. And it's not a mountain, it's the church, because our God is a consuming fire, so let's draw near and worship. You want to do that? I think we should. So let me pray. Man's going to come and lead us, and then we're going to respond and worship. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray um, that you would take this little definition, Hebrews 12, and this overwhelming hydrant of stuff out of Hebrews 12 that's just almost more than we can bear. We pray that you would help us to assimilate it at least at this moment right now, focusing on this moment, assimilated into worship and song. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would, um, maybe for someone who heard the call of this good news first time in their heart and realized, I don't belong to Jesus, that you would birth them into the kingdom. They'd just simply believe. And uh, Lord, pray that for those of us here who are fighting to walk by faith that you'd help us to stay the course another day in the difficulty and in the ease and not be thrown off because sometimes you treat us like daughters and sons and train us for holiness so that we on that day are not ashamed but Lord in this moment we want you to be glorified we want you to be pleased with us not because of our merits that's taken care of in Jesus. But we want, we, we want you to be pleased. We don't want to grieve you. We want you to be pleased with how we respond to you today relationally. That as daughters and sons, we would come just wanting to be with you and delight in you because you're worth it. And we'd enjoy your presence. We worship because of your word and what we've heard today. Would you pull that off for us? We pray that in Jesus' name.